Our Father, we do want to thank you for the chance to uh, learn from your word. Uh, things that you tell us that are important for us, not just now, but for the future. In fact, it's the future that helps us to be wise people, not mad people, in the way that we live now. So we pray to help us to learn from the Bible and teach us to live out what we have learnt. In Jesus' name and for his glory we pray. Amen. Amen. Now if you've got uh, Acts chapter 26 open in front of you, uh, I'm going to start looking, reading at verse 24. We're only going to look at verses 24 to 29. Here goes. Acts chapter 26, verse 24. Maybe you ought to put here a little, uh, little preview, prequel, is that Paul, the apostle, is in a court and he's on trial and there is a Roman governor called Festus who's in charge of the trial and what's happened is that Paul's landed up in his lap as a leftover prisoner from the last governor because Paul hadn't done anything wrong, so he shouldn't have been in prison in the first place, but anyway, he's in prison, so Festus has to work out why he's in prison to send him on to Caesar with a note saying, this is his crime, except no one knows what his crime is because he hasn't done one. That's a problem, isn't it? If you've got to write about a prisoner that isn't aware of crime. Okay, uh, so, this is recording all the time, <laughs> and uh, so therefore Paul has to uh, be brought in front of Festus, who can't understand why he's in prison, and because Paul is Jewish, he's got the Jewish king, King Agrippa, to come into the court to help him find out what to tell Caesar, he's done wrong. So, Paul explains how he met Jesus, now he's a Christian. And this is what King Festus has to say. Acts chapter 24, verse 26. As Paul was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind most excellent Festus. But I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I'm persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. We're going to stop there and uh, let the kids go to their group, and then we'll pick up the story just as soon as they've done that. Okay, well, the children have uh, left us alone. Um, not all of them have left us in peace, but they've left us mainly on our own. 
And here's the question that I want to look at this evening. Are you mad? Or what is a mad person? And what is a person who is not mad like? And can you be a mad person and then later not be a mad person? Now, I might think those are strange questions. But they are important questions, actually, to work out who in this world is mad and who isn't. Because the world actually does divide into mad and not mad people. That's what we'll find tonight. And it's the strangest thing that this court case that took place 2,000 years ago can help us to work out who's mad and who's not mad. Now, the central person in the court case is the apostle. His name is Paul. And he is on trial. And if you look at what happened, what he was like before this court case, you will discover that Paul himself says that he was mad. So if you look at chapter 26, verse 11, he describes what he was like before he became a Christian. And in chapter 26, verse 11, he says, uh, I punish Christians often in all the synagogues, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. The word raging fury literally means raging madness. It's, the Greek word is where we get our English word maniac from. Okay, Paul says, I was a maniac in my madness. That's what he's saying in chapter 26, verse 11. But now, in chapter 26, verse 24, if you look, he tells the Roman governor, I am not out of my mind. I am not mad. Because the governor, Festus, thinks that he is mad. It's interesting to see what the governor, Festus, says, because he doesn't accuse Paul of being stupid or daft. He says, no, I can recognize you've got a, you're a man of great learning. It's just that you're mad. And Paul says, no, I'm not mad. And I want to suggest to you that if you want to work out who's mad, not mad, you only need one thing to help you. And that's this big word, resurrection. Resurrection is somebody who dies and then comes back to life again. That's what Jesus did. And it's something that the Jewish people certainly thought would happen. If you look at verses 6 to 8 of chapter 26, the Jewish people thought that the resurrection was certainly on the cards. Paul says, I'm standing here on trial because of my hope in the promise made my God to our, fo for our fathers to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship him night and day. And this hope I'm accused of by the Jews, O King, why is it thought incredible by, by any of you that God raises the dead? So they all said, yeah, we believe in it. It's just that they don't actually think it could properly happen. And today, actually, non-Jewish people on our estate where we live would say that in theory they believe something is going to happen. 
they're not sure about it and they're just kind of thinking that it could well just be that you go off with your friends and family and meet up with them again. It's a vague thought that they have, but there's a theory. And Paul, in the days when he was a Pharisee, he had the theory too. But then he describes in verses 12 to 18 how he actually met Jesus on this road to Damascus. He met someone who was resurrected. And at that point, it wasn't a theory anymore. It just became 100% real. And it's that realization that made him not mad. So, remember resurrection, because just holding it in your head as a theory, that's going to end up in madness and knowing it to be true and real, living it out, that is what is a not mad person going to do. So, I'm going to say two things. And both things I'm going to say have the same words in them. I'm going to say, why is it not mad to follow Jesus? That's the first one. I'm going to tell you two things. They've got the same words. They're just going to say the opposite things because I'm going to move the not. In the second thing, I'm going to move the not one word, one word later. Okay, so I'm going to start off by saying, why is it not mad to follow Jesus? Okay, why is it not bonkers to follow Jesus? Number one reason, it is not mad to end the pain in your life. And that's exactly what Jesus told Paul, if you look at verse 14, that until he became a Christian, he was kicking against the goats. Now, I'm not quite sure anybody here has ever done that. But let me tell you, in those days, the cattle used to do it. Because the goat was a long, sharp, pointed stick that would prod cattle the way you wanted the cattle to go. Except the cattle didn't always go that way, they kicked against it except because it was long appointed, it hurt. And, Paul's, and God's saying, Paul, that's exactly what Paul was doing. When he was resisting the call of the resurrected Jesus, trying to pretend it just wasn't true, while he was on that uh, direction of travel, it was painful for him. He was kicking against the goads. He was, if you like, Resisting the prods to follow Jesus. So when you look at it like that, and now you look at how Jesus met Paul in verse 14, you can say for a start that he's not doing it to humiliate Paul, to get him on the ground with the big flashlight lighting and then he's got to hit the dust. And there's Jesus trying to humiliate the person who used to be his enemy. Now that's not what Jesus is doing. All Jesus is doing is ending his pain. That's why he met him. Because he was in pain before he was kicking against the goats. But now the pain has gone. He understands that he needs to go with the prod. Not against it. And let me tell you that actually that's true for us. When we resist Jesus prodding us to follow him, we're going to make life painful for ourselves. Because here's the thing, if the theory of Jesus 
is only something that we have in our heads, then the reality is that we're going to be living for this life. You with me? The logic of that? If we're not really 2020 fixed firmly on the resurrection and we're just giving it a nod, we're going to be really living for this life. And if you're living for this life, you will make dodgy and dangerous and disappointing decisions. You will start living for other things in this life that will never ultimately be satisfying or helpful. And so there is a sense in which we, if we resist the prods to get resurrection right in a real, uh, uh, actual way, we're going to be living for this life and it's going to be painful. But once you live with the resurrection as the main driver of your life, then the madness ends. You make better decisions and the pain goes. But there are other reasons why Paul is not mad. And you can see what they are if you look at verses 25 to 27. First thing is that he's saying he's not mad because he is speaking true and rational words. Can you see that in verse 25? Paul said, I'm not out of my mind. I'm speaking true and rational words. Because it is true and a rational thing to do if you're going the wrong way, to stop going the wrong way and come back and get the right way. That is a rational thing to do. And Paul is saying, if that's what I'm doing now, you can see that I'm only telling you what is rational and true. And Christians today believe true and rational words when they believe somebody who's actually met Jesus and now believes fully that he is alive. They're only believing true and rational words at that point. They are not mad. Here's the second reason why Paul is not mad. Because there is evidence. This king doesn't just have to listen to Paul tell him the story about what happened to him on the road and just take Paul's word for it. No, he doesn't have to do that because what Jesus did wasn't done in a small little private corner that no one else knew. What he did, Jesus, uh, Paul says, was done in the glare of public. And so he tells uh, Felix that in verse 26. He says, The king knows about these things, for I am persuaded that none of these things escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. Check it out. There's evidence. Don't ask me. Go and do the research yourself. It's there. You can do it. The third thing he says that means he's not bad, in verse 27, is the clincher. He says, this is what the prophet said would happen. In other words, the Old Testament tells you this is the one thing the whole Old Testament part of the Bible is waiting to happen. And if you're a Jewish king, which is what Agrippa was, then you know that it's always on the card that the resurrection was going to happen. Because if you're a Jewish king, you will know from the Old Testament that whenever God said he was going to do something, he would do it. So King Agrippa, you know these things. It ain't a surprise, is it, to then find out 
It's all true. And I think actually it's a helpful thing to realize that Paul saying the clincher when it comes to believing in the resurrection is not the New Testament but the Old Testament. And it's interesting because the Muslim people tell us that you can't believe a word of the New Testament because everybody's gone and changed everything. So, Faramaz was chatting to a Muslim on Wednesday who said Jesus didn't die. There was no resurrection because he didn't die in the first place. God just came and took him. And so when Faramaz said, but the eyewitnesses said that he died, they said, we don't believe the eyewitnesses because Christians have changed the Bible. So they write you off straight away. But if you tell them, hold a minute, okay, you want to put that to one side? What about the whole Old Testament, all these prophets? They said the resurrection was going to happen to him. Now at that point, Muslims are not going to ditch the whole Old Testament because they're going to be ditching all their prophets in the, in the process. All the babies go out with bathwater at that point. So therefore, it's worth actually saying that the real clincher for the resurrection is actually in the Old Testament. That all the pointers are there saying this is going to happen. And once you accept the Old Testament prophets, as King Agrippa would say that he did, after all, he's a Jewish king, he's not going to stand up in public and say, I don't believe the prophets. Not while I'm a Jewish king, I can't say that. But if the Jewish king says he believes the prophets, then Paul says in that case, you'd better believe the prophets, haven't you? Become a Christian. He's not putting a king of Agrippa on the spot saying, you know, King of saying, you want me to become a Christian so soon? And Paul is not saying, look, I'm going to rush you. He's saying, look, you've got nowhere else to go. If the prophets say this and you believe the prophets, game, set, match. Become a Christian today. It is not mad to follow Jesus. It ends your pain. It is true and rational words. There is evidence. There are, there's a whole, a hundreds of years of prophecy. It is not mad to believe in, to want to follow Jesus. Okay, now I'm going to move the not, not one, one word along, right? And I'm going to say why it is mad not to follow Jesus. Being non-Christian is madness. I'll tell you why. We'll do the shortcut for the sake of time. It is madness to make up your mind that something cannot happen and then try and fit everything in to suit your conclusion. It is madness to start with a conclusion and then try and make all the facts fit the conclusion. That is madness. And that is the madness that uh, is going on here. If you don't believe the possibilities there of Jesus rising from the dead, and Paul is saying in verse 8, why is it, why do you think it's incredible that God should do such a thing? If you rule out the possibility of a resurrection, 
then you're going to reject and rule out anybody that says that it happened. Because you started with your conclusion and all the facts will only be accepted if they fit your conclusion. Whereas the better thing to do is to say, I'll end with the conclusion, I'll start with the facts and I'll see where the facts lead. Then I'll make my conclusion. You start with the conclusion, try and cram everything in there and you leave a lot out that doesn't go with the conclusion. And that's what the Jews were doing with the resurrection. And so you have to basically say, I don't believe, like those Muslims said they didn't believe in the resurrection. And then you've got to kind of try and say, okay, so I'm not, I can't take the facts of people who saw it happen. I've got to make up my new story that it didn't happen and that God took him. And you end up with a madder story than the real story. And that's what happens. You need to see how easy it is to start with the resurrection, to start with the conclusion, and then try and massage everything to fit in with what you started with. The better thing to do is to do what Paul had to do here, which is to admit that your first conclusion was wrong. And he had decided that uh, Jesus did not rise, and therefore the Christians that were telling him that Jesus was risen, but they just had to be put down, didn't they? Because it didn't fit with the conclusion. So in chapter 26, verses 9 to 11, there's Paul saying, well, I was in a re raging fury against them. I did my best to put them in prison. And I even quite liked it when they died. He was mad with anger, trying to get his conclusion without being challenged on his conclusion. But after he realized he, there was really a resurrection, well, then he was able to say, the conclusion I used to have is wrong. I've seen the facts. I've come to a new conclusion. But at that point, sanity comes into his life. He's not mad anymore. And not only is he not mad himself, and he's not in any pain himself, he now goes and tells other people so that he can stop the madness for them by explaining the gospel as he did. You see, if um, you are mad, see the madness of verse 18 on the flip side. If you're mad, you've got your eyes shut and you're staying in darkness, and you're staying in the power of Satan, and you've got no forgiveness. But if you're not mad anymore, and you turn to Jesus and you follow him, the madness finishes. Your eyes are opened. You've gone from darkness to light. You've gone from the power of Satan to God, and you've gone from unforgiveness to forgiveness. And a, place amongst those who are sanctified by faith. Can you see how the tables are turned? Paul was, not, Paul was mad, and then he was not mad. It is living out the resurrection, getting that strongly in his mind, that now made him sane.
but trying to just live with the resurrection of theory and keeping it there is ultimately madness. But there is another way in which Paul turns the table because remember, he's the one in the dock, okay? He's the one on trial. But if you think about it, it's the resurrection that puts the judges on trial. Because now the people who've heard Paul have heard true and rational words, they've heard evidence, they've heard about the prophets, they've heard about Paul himself who's met Jesus, and these judges, if they reject all that Paul has put in front of them, well, in the end, they are going to be in the dock in front of God because God will say, you are mad. Do you understand what I'm getting at? If you reject what God has put in front of us, then God one day is going to decide that we are mad. And so therefore, God's turned the tables on in the courtroom. And the mad person is actually the one who's not mad. And the one who's rejecting him, but they are really the mad ones. Even though they happen to be the ones with the positions of power. Now, what does that mean for us? Just very quickly. It means that if you are not yet a Christian, God is calling you to make a decision about Jesus based on true and rational words, based on evidence, eyewitnesses like Paul, and based on what the prophets have said in the Old Testament part of the Bible. And as God is calling you by putting these things in front of you, what is really happening is that you are in the dock and if you reject that, that is how you will be in front of God one day. And I think the foolishness of people today in Dagenham, in London, is to think that what the person in the dock thinks about God is important and makes a difference. Let me tell you, Whatever someone thinks when they're in the dock about the judge is really neither here nor there. It's what the judge thinks the person in the dock that actually makes a difference. And so therefore, if you aren't Christian, then the right thing to do is to say, I see what God has put in front of me, and I'm now going to live my life having changed my mind on the conclusion I used to have, and I will now live flat out, flat out, full on, for the resurrected Jesus. That's if you're not a Christian. What happens if you are kind of a church person, and there's lots of people that grow up going to church lots? Maybe the habit drops off after a while, but they kind of still can't break the church habits. They go every now and then if they don't go all the time. What's a passage like this got to say to a person like that? But I think what it shows us is that it is possible, isn't it, to have a theory resurrection. That is, to have it in your head 
that yes, of course it's true, I can stand up in church and say I believe it, but bottom line is, the way I live my life is actually all for now. The things I live for, the things I want most are all to do with this life. Resurrection, that's just a theory for the future. And when Paul talks about uh, changing your mind on that, he is deadly serious. If you look at verse 20, because he tells these people, and remember, this is the king of the Jews, and a lot of people in the court are Jews, and he says that he is telling people, as he's telling the Gentiles, they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. In other words, you're going to live it out in every moment of your life if this is the new big truth that you have understood. It's easy, isn't it, to just keep the theory going? And church and coming in a place like this on a Sunday will keep the theory going? It'll top it up? You'll say, yeah, I can see now that the theory is a good theory because it's true in rational words, there's evidence and so on. But it's still a theory. And Sunday Christianity is just a theoretical belief and a nod to the Bible. But real Christianity is performing the deeds of repentance. That is, when we actually find ourselves on a collision course of what God wants to do, we don't kick against the prods, we obey. It means that we now live our lives with the resurrection as the important day in front of us, so that we live now in a way that will make sense then. We make decisions now. We give. We spend our time. We love other Christians in ways that will make sense when that day comes. Much, much more than just doing church. You bear the deeds of repentance. But there's one extra thing I think I'd want to say. If you're someone here who's a real believer, and it's not a good thing to hear me say, but if you are a real believer, then let me tell you, I'm afraid to tell you, that it is your calling in life and mine to be known of as mad. That's what people are going to think about us. You're going to carry that label with you. If you're a believer, that's what people will say. They probably won't tell you that you're stupid because you probably, they know you've got a brain inside you. So say, well, we know you're not stupid, you've got great learning perhaps, but we still think you're mad. And that's going to happen to you because it happened to Jesus. They looked at what Jesus was doing and they said, well, he's the king of the demons, isn't he? He's that mad that all the demons have got him. He's the king of them. And it happened to Paul. Festus says, you are mad. But it happened to Paul because he was trying to convince other people that this is a truth 
that should be believed in. And I want to suggest to you that it's our evangelism, the desire that we have to help the people living next door to us, either side, in front of us, and on our estate, if you happen to be part of our church, then that is the confirmation that we really do believe that Jesus has been resurrected and therefore we want to go out and we want to explain to people true and rational words. We want to put in front of them the evidence of people who actually saw what happened. We want to put in front of them what the prophets have actually said and we want to actually say, look, live your life, make up your mind that this is true and live for this day in front of you from now on. And ultimately, it's the people who want other people to become Christians, who, like Paul, are really wanting to work to bring other people into the kingdom because they love them so much. Now, those are the people who are not mad. The people who just have the resurrection as a theory, and it's a little private faith that I keep to myself. But if you really believe the truth and you keep it to yourself, that there's going to be a heaven and a hell, and you don't want anybody else to be saved from hell to heaven, if that is just the theory you live with, well, then that's madness, isn't it? To live life as if there is going to be a future judgment, but not actually mentioning to anybody that there is. And keep it quiet. That is, well, it's cruel, but it's mad. And I want to suggest to you, therefore, that we want to be those who um, are people who show that we really do live out the resurrection by wanting others to see it and believe it and live for it too. Now, on Tuesday we'll be meeting and we'll be talking about the details of that a little bit more and we've got time this evening when we can go out for a meal and have a conversation like that together. But... Please remember that the world shakes down into those who are mad and those who are not mad. The ones who are mad ultimately are those who have a theoretical view of what might be in front of us but mainly live for this life. The ones who are not mad are the ones who understand the truth that Jesus is risen from the dead and therefore one day we will be in front of him and who then live with that final picture guiding them in their minds and they will live the most pain-free and the most uh, uh, wise and true and reasonable and rational life of all. We'll take questions and maybe you can come back and argue, but just in one minute, please talk to God about what you've heard and then we'll talk to each other. Just a moment, a minute of silence, and then we can come back and talk together. Paul said, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Lord, please, we ask you, to help us to be wise people, not to make conclusions first and then try to make everything fit, but to see what you tell us in the Bible, to change the conclusions that we might have had before, 
and to come to new conclusions to live for the Lord Jesus. And please, Father, help us in this new week to express our conviction about the resurrection by wanting other people to become as we are and to want that for everyone that we have in our lives. Please would you give us such a desire and a longing and would you through that allow us to commend the Lord Jesus and his resurrection using ourselves, true and rational words, pointing to the evidence and teaching about the prophets. Help us to persuade and bring many people from, as Paul said, darkness to light, from the kingdom of Satan to God, from unforgiveness to forgiveness. And in the end, to a place with those who are sanctified by faith like Paul in the Lord Jesus. And in his name we pray. Amen.